I should mention to you, too, we need to be praying for that community out at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas tonight with that school shooting that went on uh, today. Uh, let's be praying for those families uh, that were in fact impacted by that. There was a little girl that wanted to play the piano, but no matter how much she played, how often, how long she played, she always ended up with chopsticks. Um, you know that little song, Chopsticks? You can play it with two fingers. Um, no matter what song she started off with, she always ended up playing two-finger chopsticks. And her parents were so frustrated, they had her in lesson after lesson after lesson. And uh, that's a, no matter what she starts, she could start out with happy birthday, but she's going to end up playing chopsticks. Just that little simple two-finger song. Her parents decided to put her into uh, uh, contact with a much more accomplished pianist, and the, uh, the lessons were going to be a lot more intense. So he, he took this girl on as a student, brought her to his home, and, and um, she got to the house, and uh, the, uh, uh, the lady that, that kept the house there, she met them at the door and invited them to come in, and boy, they, they walked into this great big foyer, and in the foyer of this magnificent home sat this huge, grand Steinway piano, just a beautiful piano. And that little five- or six-year-old girl, boy, she made her, right, made her way right over to that $300,000 piano, plopped down on that piano bench, started playing two-finger chopsticks. She just went at it. The parents were mortified. Here they are in this big mansion, this maestro of a, of a piano player lives here, and there's their girl playing on this very expensive piano, playing chopsticks. They are mortified. And they're on their way over to her to get her off of that bench. And about that time, the instructor walked, walked in, and he stopped them. And he just sat down right next, next to that little girl on the piano bench. And as she was playing chopsticks and she was going on with her, her little recital that she had uh, played, um, he just started playing right along with her. And he started adding chords and runs and all of these, all of these wonderful arpeggios that were just going along. And all of a sudden, chopsticks and its accompaniment was just filling the room. And it was a magnificent song that they're playing together. Sometimes I feel like we may think all we can do is play chopsticks. And the truth of the matter is, that's really all we can do. The, the best we can do in this world is to play two-finger chopsticks with our life. What we need is for, we, we need the master to come in and sit down beside us, and we do what we can do, but the truth is, it doesn't do much until he gets involved and he takes the lead and adds his power and his presence and his strength and his ability to our little puny two-finger chopsticks, and then something beautiful happens. We were talking today in the office about that. We were talking how, how really there is in me no good thing. Paul said, there, Paul said there, there is nothing good in me. Anything I have or you have, anything you do or I do that matters at all in eternity, it's going to be done because God did it through you. Play your two-finger chopsticks, do your thing, do what you can, but the truth is it's God adding to that that really makes the significant difference. I, I said uh, uh, earlier that a couple of years ago we did a series in the life of Gideon, and the, and the next judge that we're going to meet tonight is Gideon. That series was entitled, God's Plan is Always Best. It always is. Uh, and we took our time with, with the chapters that we're going to cover 
uh, we're going to cover rather quickly here because we're, all we're doing is surveying the book of Judges. And so we're going to look this week and, Lord willing, next week at this judge who, by the way, there's more said about him than any other judge, including Samson, in the book of Judges. 100 verses are dedicated to this man named Gideon. God gives us great detail about uh, not necessarily his backstory, but about what God gave him to do and then how God did it. And Gideon's story is wonderfully woven into that little story about the little girl with two-finger chopsticks because Gideon really didn't bring all that much to the table. Not, not when it came to military strategy, not when it came to courage. There's a lot of people that I think men and women who have great courage, but they don't really have military uh, strategy as part of one of their strengths. They're courageous, but they don't. Well, he, he didn't bring either of those things to the table. And yet, you know Gideon's story. God wrought a great, uh, a great victory through him. So Gideon, is an, he's an encouragement for those who have a hard time believing that God can do great things through them. Because Gideon didn't think so. You remember how he's greeted? We'll read this in just a moment. The, the angel shows up and says, uh, hey, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon just, that, that, was, that was not who he thought he was. And oftentimes we think we, think we might struggle with, with God being unable to use us, but that's not really the case. God can use anybody who has a willing heart. He can do great and miraculous things to people who have a willing heart. Well, Gideon illustrates that for us. Israel's going to get into trouble again. It's the same song, third or fourth verse. I guess, it's, in fact, this is the fourth verse. <laughs> it's the fourth time in the book, <coughs> excuse me, that Israel gets, uh, they get into a pattern of sin and they end up being oppressed by the Midianites. They've got some helping tribes, the Midianites do, but overall it's the Midianites that are doing uh, the oppressing in Judges chapter number 6. Here's the thing to keep in mind throughout the book of Judges as we make our way through this. God was Israel's only hope. He was also their greatest threat. It wasn't the Midianites. It wasn't the Amalekites or the Philistines. Their greatest threat was God. Do you remember, do you remember Jesus' words in the New Testament when he said, don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul. God was their greatest, their only hope, but he was also their greatest threat. He wanted to do great things in Israel. He wanted to do great things through Israel. He wanted them to be victorious. But the fact of the matter was, and you see it illustrated again and again and again in this book, is that their desire to enjoy sin and its pleasures was greater than their desire to enjoy God and his fellowship. That's why they keep going back. You or I may know Christians who have that problem. They, they love the Lord. But they, they love the world, and they keep going back. God wanted them to have victory. Um, he wanted Gideon to be the leader. Israel really didn't want to do what it took to have the victory, and Gideon wasn't sure that he could be the leader. Let's look at Judges chapter 6. Let's read the first um, 10 verses. Judges 6 verse 1 says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of, the, of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, 
the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitudes. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. Just pause right there. They keep going back to the bondage. That's what they keep going back to. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. You keep running back to it. I delivered you from it. Verse 9, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And that's an indictment, isn't it? I did this, I did this, I did this. You have not obeyed my voice. What I want you to note in here is that even in hard times, God is always concerned with his children. They're they're struggling, they're under seven years in bondage with the Midianites. Even in hard times, God is always concerned with his children. This was the result of their sin. God was still concerned about it because when they cried out to the Lord, he answered them. We're going to make our way through this chapter Um, It sounds like the Lord's mad at him if you stop at verse number 10, but let's not stop there tonight. Let's make our way through it and see how God responds to them. Warren Wearsby said there were four questions that Gideon asked when he's talking to the angel, the story that we're about to read. There are four questions that are implied in, in his comments. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to use his questions for our main points tonight and then expound on each one of those and see what he's talking about, all right? So let's keep reading (coughs) verse number 11. God is done talking to the people of Israel through the prophet. And now in verse 11, there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, saying unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord, or O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. We'll stop right there. We'll keep going in a moment, but let's stop right there. And now we, we get to uh, we get to Gideon. He's on the scene. The, God has addressed and he's scolded his children. And, and now he brings Gideon to the forefront. So we'll watch him for the rest of this time out. But four questions tonight. 
that Dr. Wearsby gave us, and then I'd like to look at each one of those. Here's the four questions. Let me just give them to you up front, all right? The first one is, does God really care? Does God really care? The second one is, and you've asked this before, I bet, but you don't have to acknowledge it. Does God know what he's doing? Does God know what he's doing? Third question, will God take care of me? And the last question, does God keep his promises? As we make our way through, and, and, you're, and you're, you're answering those questions as you go, but I want you to notice Gideon is asking these things in the word he's saying because of the mess he was in and his, his country was in. And he's, these are legitimate questions to him. Do you remember on this first question, does God really care? Do you remember when Jesus and the disciples were in the boat in the middle of the storm? What was the word of the disciples? Master, carest thou not that we perish? There's a lot of people on that first question. There's a lot of people that come to that point. The trials get heavy. They're repeated. Do you ever feel sometimes like you're the Atlanta airport landing planes, just one trial right after another coming in? You go to those busy airports, and if you go at night, you can see the planes lined up for miles and miles. I remember one time we were staying around the Atlanta airport. We were spending the night near the airport because we were flying out really early in the morning, and I counted either 11 or 12 planes that I could see lined up. It was a clear night. You could see planes forever. Sometimes I feel like our trials are like that, and you see them coming, don't you? Their headlights are on. You, how are you going to stop that? You're not going to stop that. That plane's going to land, and it's coming to your house to land in. And you might ask yourself what Gideon asks here in verses, 10, uh, verses uh, 11 through 13. Does God really care? Does he care? I mean, we've, we've heard about the deliverances and all that. But how is, it that we're, how is it that we're so oppressed under these Midianites if God, if God really cares? The truth is this, though, that God had proved that he loved Israel. Gideon's response to the angel implied that God had forsaken Israel, but God's actions proved otherwise. And here's God's actions. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, God chastened them. He chastened them. That's what tells us in, when, he, when he's talking about the Midianites coming and they're taking over the land. God chastened Israel with those Midianites. That's an, that's an important quote I put on there by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully. If you're saved, if I'm saved and I sin, God's going to chasten you. That's a non-negotiable. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, the Bible says. It doesn't say he might. This is one of the greatest proofs of a person's claim to salvation is that when they sin, they're chastened of the Lord. And if you sin and you're not chastened of the Lord, you have good grounds on which to question whether or not you're really saved. Well, the Lord chastened them because they were his people. It's the nation of Israel. God's not a permissive parent who... Let's their children, lets their children get away with whatever. I, boy, it gets all over me. I don't know if it does you or not, but it gets all over me when, when you see children misbehaving. Not, not just violating my standard of right and wrong, but just flat out misbehaving or disrespecting their parents. And the parents just blow it off. I'm like, look, if you just give me a week with your child, you would be amazed at the different kid I'd bring back to you. 
God's not a permissive parent. He's not going to let his children do whatever they want and then pat them on the head and say, well, bless your heart. He's not going to do that. So he chastens them. He chastens them hard. This is the fourth time that he has allowed a foreign nation, mark this, a pagan foreign nation, to have military victory over his people and put them in bondage for years. This is a short one, isn't it? Only seven years with the Midianites. Chastening and discipline are evidence of two things, God's hatred of sin and his love for his children. Were were you ever, I, I put this down, were you ever punished for doing something that you didn't know your parents thought was wrong? Think that through. Were you ever punished for something that you didn't, you didn't know your parents thought that was wrong? You learned quickly, didn't you? Well, I'm not doing that anymore. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that, but now I do know. Well, they were flirting with Baalism. They were flirting with child sacrifice. They were participating in wrong marriages, and God said, that's enough. And so in they went. He, he chastened them. Israel had already suffered for 43 years under uh, three former oppressors. And now here they are for the fourth time suffering under Midian just because God wanted them back. Remember that God's chastening, God's discipline of you and I, it's always with the goal of restoring us to him in fellowship. It's not that he's being mean to the children of Israel. He's just trying to get them back. So the first thing, does God really care? Yes, he cares. How do you know? Because he chastened them. And whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The second thing is he rebuked them. And he did that in verses 7 through 10. Verses 1 through 6 read like a narrative, but verses 7 through 10 are a conversation. And in the first six verses, God is working in Israel with his hand. And now he's working in verses 7 through 10 with Israel with his word. There's an angel of the Lord in in Judges chapter 2. And there's this unnamed prophet in in chapter 6 and verse 8. And both of them have the same message. Israel, God's not going to tolerate your sin. God's saying it. God's showing it. Uh, The purpose of discipline is to make God's children willing to listen to God's word. I, I I would say it like this. God would much rather you and I respond to his word so he doesn't have to apply his hand. And I say that because as a parent, that's how I felt. I, I did not one time enjoy spanking any four of my kids. Never. But they were never spanked without having first been warned. God's the same way with you and I. He gives us his word. and He says, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. He gives us his word and he gives us his warning and his rebuke. But he'll chasten us if we have to. Here he's using his word through this this prophet. One of the things that we did with our kids when we would spank them, we would not just spank them and just leave them to themselves. We would extend to them a reassurance that we loved them and the reason we spanked them was we did not want them to continue in a course that would ruin their life. The Bible says, he that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed. And 
that without remedy. And Terry and I raised our kids, often reproving them because we did not want them to be destroyed. So change their, their, God was working to change them. He chastened them. He rebuked them. And now in verses 11 through, thir- through 13, now he's going to help them. He chastened them. He rebuked them. And then he puts his arm around them. And he shows his loving heart. They cry out to him. And he responds. Now keep this in mind. We, I think we mentioned this last week. Israel's only crying out because of their suffering. They're not crying out because of their sin. They don't like what their sin has brought to them. And yet God still responds because God has a loving heart for his people. Do you remember that verse we read last, uh, last week at thank, or week four last at, at Thanksgiving, Psalm 103, verse number 10 says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. God, God responds to his people when they're crying out to him. And that's what they did. He chastened them, he rebuked them, and now he was going to help them. I hope I left on your worksheet this little sentence. God in mercy does not give us what we deserve. God in grace gives us what we do not deserve. And this is exactly what he did for Israel. Now he does it for his church. He does it for his people in the New Testament. This is how he responds to us. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He does not reward us according to our iniquities. You and I would both have to admit that if God marked iniquity, who would stand? None of us would. Well, does God really care? That's what he's asking here in these verses. In, in, in the first part of this, uh, his response there to the angel, Gideon says, If the Lord be with us, then why is all this befallen us? Does God really care? Absolutely God cares. Gideon, that's why you're in the mess you're in. Because God loves you. Second question, does God know what he's doing? First, he questions God's concern. And now he's going to question God's wisdom. Verse number 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He questions God's wisdom. Does God know what he's... Lord, me? My family's poor, and I'm the least in my father's house. Now, in verse number 15, mark this. Gideon should have taken God at his word and believed what God had told him, but he didn't do that. Instead, you get this? He tells God... Why God's plan is not going to work. Well, he's got some boldness to him now. He may not have had it when God was calling him to lead Israel, but he's got some boldness now because he's talking to God and he's telling God, God, this is why your plan of me leading Israel, this is why it's not going to work. Have you ever had that conversation with God? Where God gives you something to do? Well, I don't know about this, God. I think there's probably a better way to do this. We had a guy that used to go to our church years ago. His name was Randy Price. And Randy, uh, he, and, he and his family live out in Oklahoma now. Randy was our IT guy back in the old building. He hooked us up, and he really kind of pushed our church. Uh, you know, he pushed our church from one level to a big next level. 
and he got our computers up and running, and everything was going great. We were having a problem, and, and Randy would talk. When he would talk computers, I'd just sit there and say, hmm, hmm, wow, well, hmm, yeah. So I didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but i just nod my head like, oh, that's a good point right there. I'd, I would do that if I would, yeah. Randy was just so intelligent when it came to computers and solving. And we were having a problem upstairs with one of our uh, computers in our sound room up there. It was, it was kind of elevated in the back of the church. And one of our teenagers who worked up there and kind of ran things during service, one of our teenagers was up there, and I was up there with him, and uh, Randy's doing some things. And that, that teenager started telling Randy what he ought to be doing. And I looked at him, and I'm like, do you even know, who, you even know what you're talking about? You know, sometimes it's, it's amazing to me how, how we will instruct God as to how things ought to be. I mean, we may look at a teenager. We may even scold that teenager for telling a computer genius how he ought to do things. But we do the same thing with God, just like Gideon is doing here. God says, Gideon, this is what I want you to do. And Gideon says, well, God, let me, I'm going to have to explain this to you. This is why your plan's not going to work. I'm poor, and I'm the least in my father's house. Does God even know what he's doing in my life? Is he aware of what's going on? He gives him two excuses. When he says, my family is poor, here's what he's saying. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to offer. But the fact of the matter is, he had ten servants helping him with a job. In verse number 27, uh, a, a work, that, work that God uh, gives him to do. In verse number 27, he's got ten servants that he can call. I don't have ten servants, do you? I don't have ten servants willing to do anything I ask them to do. He says, I don't have anything to offer. The second thing he says is, I am the least in my father's house. The Hebrew reads, I am the least liked in my father's house. What he's saying is, no one likes me. I don't have anything to offer. I'm poor. And no one likes me. I'm the least in my father's house. What you'll learn about his dad is that his dad is a Baal worshiper. But Gideon is not. For all of his flaws, he's at least, he at least is a worshiper of Jehovah. It's not that Gideon was a great man of faith, but he had put his faith in the right God. But his dad hadn't. His dad was a Baal worshiper. And so that probably did cause some tension in the home. I'm the least liked in my father's house. I have nothing to offer and nobody likes me. And yet you're telling me that I ought to go out and lead Israel against this. Here's, here's a lesson to learn. Once God has revealed his will to you, we ought not to question that because he's God. And the rest of that sentence should probably say, and I'm not. Once God's will is known, we just ought to go with it. L listen to some of the verses on this thought. Remember, he's, he's questioning God's wisdom in God's plan. But listen to what the scripture says. Romans chapter 11, verse 4. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Isaiah 40, 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor has taught him? 1 Corinthians 2, 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Job eleven seven, 
Canst thou by searching find out God? Can you discover all he knows? Canst thou find out the Almighty under perfection? You see, the, the scripture over and over and over says, who is man to question God? God gave his will. For some of you, God's given his will to you. Just do it. Just accomplish it. This is, this is Gideon's struggle right now. So in verse number 17, Gideon asks for a sign. To be sure, it was Jehovah speaking to him. Look at verse number 17. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Show me a sign that it's really you, God, talking with me. Okay. So verse number 18, Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. So Gideon went in and made ready a kid, an unleavened cakes of ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak, and presented it. I want you to give me a sign, God. I want to ask you to give me a sign. Before you leave, let me... Let me make an offering to you. Let me make a sacrifice to you, and I'll bring you a meal. And the angel, verse 20, the angel said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Verse 17, he wants a sign. This is a good sign you're talking to the true God. And there arose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. That's a pretty good sign that you're talking to God. And then it says, then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Fire from a rock and then the angel of the Lord disappears just like that. That's a good sign. And then it dawns on him. He was talking to the true God in verse number 22 When Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. That alas, O God, is a cry of desperation as if he were going to die. He's saying, I'm going to die because I've seen an angel of the Lord face to face. It dawned on him he was was talking right. His faith wasn't that strong. He didn't believe God's word at the first. But then when he found out it was God and God was giving him something to do, then he thought God was going to kill him. He's got a very wishy-washy faith. It's in Jehovah, but it's not a very solid or strong faith. So he keeps questioning God. Does God really care? Yes, God cares. Does God know what he's doing? Does he know who he's calling to lead? God knows what he's doing far better than we do. Third question is this. Will God take care of me? Will God take care of me? Now ask yourself this. You may have to plug something else in there. Will God take care of me? Will God take care of my family? Will God take care of my spouse? Plug in what you want there, but the question here is, will God take care of me? You see, this is an up and down day for for Gideon. Have you ever had a, a a spiritual roller coaster kind of day? Where it just goes up and down. That's what's going on with Gideon here. It's a spiritual roller coaster kind of day. He was glad to hear that God would soon deliver Israel. This is going to be great. He was not so glad to hear that he was going to lead the 
the deliverance. God knew that Gideon was leery of this, and so here's how God helped him. God gave Gideon, before he sent him out with an army to face the Midianites, God gave him a smaller spiritual task closer to home. In verse number 25, it says, It came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. So instead of just thrusting him out there to to take the lead on this this great big army facing a, a much bigger army, and we know Gideon's army doesn't stay big very long, But instead of having him go to that major battle first, he gives him something smaller to do. And and there's a lesson there for you and I to catch on it. If we don't practice our faith at home, how are we going to practice it in public? So he gives him a job to do at his house. He lives with his father, as was the custom then. So here's the idea that before God gives his servants great victories in public, He sometimes prepares them by giving them smaller victories in private. That battle with the Midianites, that was going to be pretty public. This is something a little more private. In fact, it's also done at night. And you see God doing this with other people. What did God do with David before he had to face Goliath? Gave him a lion and a bear. What did God do with Daniel and the three Hebrews before they they faced the lion's den and the fiery furnace? He put, the, he put that stand that they had to take. Look, we're not going to drink the, wine, the king's wine and we're not going to eat the king's meat. They had to take a much smaller, more private stand. And then when they had to make their big stand in front of people, they were ready. But God does this. He prepares his people. Here, Gideon has to, he has to destroy the altar of Baal and he does so at his father's house. And he, he tears down this, this pole that's part of the worship. And God said, the, the wood from that pole, use that to sacrifice on an altar that you make to me. Gideon, Gideon had some fear to him, but he obeyed God. It said he destroyed the, the, the altar at night because he was afraid of those around him. But he still obeyed God. He did what he was supposed to do. And, and this is what I draw from that for you and for me. God's people can't worship the Lord in spirit and in truth until we tear down the altars to other gods that we're already worshiping. Those gods might be money, they might be our job, they might be possessions, they might be status, whatever that is. But we will not worship God in spirit and in truth until we get rid of those other altars. So before Gideon declared war publicly on Midian, he has to declare war on Baal in his own home. And that's, that's exactly what he did. Well, and people got mad, didn't they? When you read the following verses, the men, verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down. The grove was cut down, that pole that was by it. The second bullock was offered on the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who hath done this thing? 
And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. I I love this part. Remember, Joash's dad is a Baal worshiper. The, The Baal altar is on his property. Verse 30. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Listen to what dad says. Dad, the Baal worshiper, says this. He said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he, if Baal be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. That's not bad for a Baal worshiper to come out. That's a man who loved his son. Why are you here pleading Baal's case? If he's a God worthy of our worship, shouldn't he be the one going after my son, not you? Well, this is, a, this is a, an interesting split because now the Bible says they give him a name. They change Gideon's name here and they start calling him Jeroboam. He's no longer Gideon. The Bible says these guys start calling him Jeroboam. Jeroboam means let Baal deal with him. That's what it means. So whenever he's walking to market or whenever he's walking downtown or whenever he sees friends in the street, he's no longer Gideon. He is Jeroboam. Baal's going to deal with him. It was a mocking name. That's what they were doing with him. They They were persecuting him for this. So I left on your worksheet, if the unbelieving world gives you grief for being a Christian, a mocking name, wear it like a badge of honor before the Lord. Matthew chapter 5 and verses, Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 through 12 speak to that very thought. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. They want to call you Jeroboam, Gideon? Wear it like a badge of honor. Get a patch. Put the patch on your hat. Rejoice, because you're suffering for my sake. If you obey the Lord, even though you're still struggling, uh, maybe with, with real solid faith, God's going to protect you. And he protected, he protected Gideon here. But don't back down. If you take a stand for the Lord and, and, and you suffer for it, wear that like an honorable medal. Because it's, God says, great is your reward. Does, does God really care? He does. Does God know what he's doing better than you or me? Will God take care of me even when it seems like you're the only one doing right? Last question Dr. Wearsby gave us. Does God keep his promises? Does he? Verse number 33. All the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of East were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun, 
and unto Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. If the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so. For he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew upon all the ground. You know that. Uh, It's come to be called Gideon's fleece, and we use that as as church talk, as Christianity, uh, Christian speech. We talk about putting out Gideon's fleece. What you have in verse 33 is the annual invasion of the Midianites. They come in every harvest time, and they take all of the crops. Um, and in this one, we know in this particular raid, chapter 8 and verse 10 says, they brought 135,000 enemy troops with them to take all of this harvest. So uh, Gideon blows this trumpet And 32,000, you know how this is going to go, 32,000 men are going to respond. Now, what chance do 32,000 men have against 135,000 who who are bringing with them a cavalry that is riding camels? Those camels uh, would give the army a a great advantage when it came to speed and also just an advantage point, a strategic advantage. They're fighting from, uh, from the back of a camel. And the Bible says those camels were without number. Well, God said that God said he was going to deliver Israel. He was going to do it with, with Gideon. But Gideon has 32,000. They have 135,000. How's this going to happen? And so to see if God would keep his promises, God, uh, Gideon rather, tested God. He tested him. He puts out the fleece on night number one. And there, it's a wet fleece, dry ground. Night number two, it's a dry fleece, wet ground. He puts this, he puts this thing out. Let's, let's talk about that, because I doubt you have done that as literally as Gideon did, but perhaps you have done this in your, uh, in, uh, figuratively in your personal life with decisions to be made. So let's talk about putting out the fleece, when you're trying to get an answer from God on a specific situation. Like this. Well, if I get a phone call from so-and-so within the next two hours and he says or she says this, I'll know God wants me to do this. Or we'll say something like this. If it rains tomorrow, I'm going to know God wants me to go. If it does this or it does that. Now, you don't have a piece of wool that you're dealing with, but you're putting out a fleece. If this happens, I'll know what to do. If this happens, I'll know what to do. May I caution you against doing that? Putting out a fleece is not a spiritually mature method for determining the will of God. Rather, it reveals a lack of faith that God will do what he said he would. Do you know what what Gideon had before the fleece? when it came to the army and the battle and all that, you know what he had? He had God's word on it. 
God said to Gideon, I want you to lead Israel against Midian and against the Malachites. I want you to lead them, and I'm going to give you the victory. He had God's word on it. Yet Gideon said, I know what you said, God, but I just want to confirm it. It reveals a lack of faith here. This is not a spiritually mature method for determining God's will. And that's Gideon's problem. He didn't believe God's, he, he didn't believe God's word in this. May I ask you a question? And I, we have to remember who we are and who God is. David does a good job of, of drawing a picture of a big God, doesn't he, in the Psalms? Who are you and I to tell God what to do so we can believe what he tells us? Because that's, that's what's going on here. God said this. Let, let, me put it, let me put it like this. The fleece approach not only reveals a lack of faith, but it reveals a measure of pride. Here's why I say that. Because what we're saying, when we put out the fleece, God says, God gives us this to do. And we know what God wants us to do. But we say, well, God, I'm going to put this out here, and and if this happens, then I'll know that what you're saying is right. Here's, Here's what we're really saying. I'm not going to do what God tells me to do until God does what I tell him to do. That is exactly what Gideon said to God when he put the fleece out after God told him what to do. I'm not going to do, God, what you told me to do until you do what I tell you to do. Pastor, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. I, I never. That's the truth. He had God's word on it. You and I have God's word on it. This is what Paul is going to say to church after church after church in the New Testament. You have God's word on it. So go with it. Let's close, let's close these up. Things are good. Gideon now has 32,000 men. The fleeces are wet. The fleeces are dry. Everything's going. God must be in this. We've got these 32,000 men. Let's go forward and and win this battle. Well, you know what's coming uh, to those 32,000 men. We're going to go down to about 1%. Too often we fail to take God at his word, and he has to spend time convincing us that he will do what he says he'll do. Let's learn Let's learn from Gideon's example just to take God at his word. Don't put a fleece out. That just reveals the weakness of my faith when I do that. Did God, did God tell me what he wanted me to do? We, we wonder sometimes, I don't really know if I should witness to that person or not. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, you know, I just don't know if I should be baptized or not. Well, what does God say about that? Just what we know to do, what God has told us to do, let's just go do it. So here's our questions. Does God really care about you? Yes, he does. Even when you're suffering under the hand of the Midianites, God still cares. Does God know what he's doing? Yep. Even when I don't realize he knows what he's doing. Even if I don't see how he's working, God still knows what he's doing. Will God take care of me? Even when it seems like the lions are moving in. Even when it seems like the giant is going to destroy me. 
Yes, God will take care. Does God keep his promises? He does, even when the circumstances say otherwise. We'll get into it next week, but I, I, I can sympathize with Gideon. Can you imagine going against 135,000 people with 300 men, none of whom are carrying a sword or a spear? I, I'll give Gideon that one, won't you? I, I just, I know my flesh. 300 against 135,000, they're armed to the teeth, and his guys are carrying clay pots and lanterns and ram's horns. Go at it, Gideon. I'll give him that one. That's, that's a tall order. Does God keep his promise, though? Yes. Even when the circumstances say otherwise, God will do for you, for your family, what he said he'll do. You can count on it. Pastor, it's just not shaping up. It will. may not be perfectly clear, but it will. God will do for you exactly what he promised he'd do because he's a God who cannot lie. It's impossible for him to. Gideon should have realized that instead of asking all these questions and putting up all these defenses, but I do the same thing, and you may do the same thing. We may question God when all God is looking for is just trust me. Just Remember Indiana Jones stepping out there on that plank that he couldn't see? Remember, I always go back to that movie. You just couldn't see that thing, but he knew he had to cross that. Just take that step. God's worth your trust. He's worth my trust. We can believe him, right? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word, and it's, it is trustworthy. Uh, we can believe it, and sometimes we don't. We have watched you do what you said you would do. We have the whole record of the Bible to see your truthfulness and your faithfulness. And yet there are those times, Lord, when my faith wavers. And so I'll put a test out there. I'll raise a question to you. And I'm thankful that uh, you don't regard all my iniquities. I thank you, Lord, for your long-suffering with me. And I pray that you would increase our faith and help us to get better at just taking you at your word and following your plan for our lives and then watch you work out all the details. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being faithful in all things and at all times to us. We pray you'd help us to be faithful like that to you. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church.